Alrighty, so we are jumping into a new series, Word Made Flesh, the unfolding story of the incarnation. This is going to be a short series that will take us into Christmas. And what we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks is this big word called the incarnation, which is just a fancy way or theological way of saying that God became human. God became human. And so I want to read from the last chapter of the Bible. It begins like this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer will there be anything accursed. This is, this is our hope. This is what we're anticipating. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And it says this. It says, they will see his face. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What better way to start than to take a sneak peek at the end? What do I mean? Well, during this Advent season, as I said, we're going to be looking at the unfolding story of the incarnation, meaning we are going to see how all of Scripture, all of Scripture, both Old Testament and the New Testament, points to the promise of God dwelling among his people. From Genesis to Revelation, we see how the relational presence of God The relational presence of God is at the heart of the Christian faith. And while the enfleshment or the incarnation of God, which was manifested in the person of Jesus, was not exactly expected by those Old Testament saints, that road was being paved from the very beginning, which is where we're going to be starting this morning. Before I start, I have to give credit to a few people that that I borrowed a ton of content from. Um, One of my professors, G.K. Beale, um, another professor, Graham Cole, and a guy named John Walton are all scholars that I just kind of like read a ton of over the last two weeks um, in preparation for this series. So with that, let's jump in and see what God has for us. So like I said, the title of the series is Word Made Flesh. This is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. And Pete is going to take us through this portion of Scripture in just a few weeks. But I wanted to make a few brief comments on what that actually means before we start looking at our text this morning. So what is the incarnation? Well, in the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, section 2, it says this. And I think I have a slide for this. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. What do I mean? What do they mean? Jesus was and is a man. And prior to his resurrection, he experienced the full burden of what it means to be human. He was tired. He cried. He sweat, he grew, he was tempted, he experienced physical pain, he bled. 
He had a body that was breakable. He was not Superman. He was not faster than a speeding bullet. And he was not able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. But the confession goes on. And it says, yet without sin, yet without sin, right? He's not completely human, right? Yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. He was fully human, He is fully human, yet at the same time, fully God. Fully human and fully God. And I know we know these things. I know we have learned these things. But these are things we can never take for granted. We can never take these things for granted. They mean so much to our faith. That God entered into our story to save us. To save us. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the Christian faith. He was different from you and me in that he was born without sin because he was and is God. But this whole idea of the incarnation, this whole idea of God becoming human, was this simply a backup plan? If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Genesis 1. It is right in the beginning of the Bible, right at the front end. And we're not going to dig into every single verse of this chapter because that would take way too long. But rather, my goal is to show you broadly what is taking place, that we would see clearly, and here's the main point of my sermon, that the presence of God with his people was always the goal of creation. The presence of God with his people was always the goal of creation. So let's just start right in the beginning. I'm literally going to read through Genesis 1 with us this morning. And we're going to talk about a lot of things. A lot of Bible this morning. There's some technical things we're going to look at, but I think we're all more than capable of handling it. It says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The earth was formless and void. In Hebrew, this rhymes. It's tohu vavohu. And I've talked about this before. It means basically chaos, topsy-turvy. Everything was a mess. And the Spirit of God was hovering over this mess that he had just started creating. And what does he do? He begins to bring order to this mess. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God, God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so there was darkness and now there is light. Very similar to the things that we celebrate at Christmas, right? There was darkness covering the earth. There's darkness covering the earth right now. But the church, in union with Christ, we bring that light of hope to the world. We bring that light of hope to the world. The text goes on. And God said in verse 6, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And so so basically what we're looking at is that there was water, and God said we're going to separate it. We're going to put some water up here, and we're going to put some water up here. In the ancient world, people believed that the sky was water. That's what they believed. 
And so what is happening here is that we're seeing that God is actually controlling water. And in the ancient world, water was something that was terrifying to people. It was terrifying to people because it was unknown. And it's still kind of scary, right? When there's a, when there's a pretty intense undertow at the beach, right? Like, that's, that's nerve-wracking. You don't really want your kids in that kind of water when it's, when it's too choppy. You want to make sure they're safe, right? Because something can happen. They can get drawn out to sea. The ocean, the sea, is a mysterious and dangerous thing. And while we love it here at the shore, it's also something that we should stand in awe of. But God wields it. Like, like a little kid would play with a top or something like that. And he says, let there be an expanse. And God made the expanse and separated the waters from the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the earth sprout forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Even that sentence right there, each according to its kind, we see that God is establishing order. He's taking chaos and he's bringing order to it. Some of us have experienced this in our own lives where, where we were living in chaos, but God in his mercy brought order to our lives. What do you think salvation is? Our lives were, were going, were going just, just insane, a mess, and, and maybe not even like intense, right? Because there's some, some conversion stories where who was the, the raging you know, drug addict or what have you. And be, I, didn't, I don't have that story. My story was, I don't even remember when I became a Christian. It was sometime between junior and senior year. It just, it just started making sense to me. And some people grew up in the church, and they never walked away from the Lord. Man, I wish that was my story. I'd have so much less baggage to deal with. The chaos portion of that story was much shorter, maybe. But this is the beauty of our God. He enters into chaos, and he brings about peace. And even now, for those of us who are walking with Jesus, we might be experiencing chaos in our own lives. The world is chaotic right now. How many of us struggling with anxiety, depression, just, just the blues in general because we're looking around and we're like, well, when's this going to end? And, and I feel like everyone's kind of walking around with their shoulders clenched like this. It's like, is this almost over? But God hovers over. The Spirit of God hovers over the chaos. And then he says in verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And he set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning the fourth day. And then God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. Again, according to their kinds. 
and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things. These are the land animals, right? A beast on the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then something happens. There's a shift in the story. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And so in six days, and that was a lot of Bible we just read, in six days, God created order. But to what end? What was the goal of all of this? A couple of things before we look at that. What are we dealing with this morning? Well, What we're not going to do is we're not going to have a discussion regarding the age of the earth this morning. It's not our goal. That's not our goal. Godly men and women throughout church history, and I mean that throughout church history, fall on either side of this debate. And it's not an issue that should ever divide us as followers of Jesus, especially if we arrive at our conclusions by studying the scriptures. The second thing, this passage shows us how God took chaos and brought it to order, establishing a creation suitable for life and the flourishing of humanity. And finally, and this is where we're going to park for the rest of our morning, this passage does something else, something that is so wonderful that every time I think about it, every time I read about it, it drives me to my knees in worship. It's God is establishing a cosmic temple in order for him to dwell with his creation, and in particular, his image bearers. In other words, God with us was a promise established from the dawning of creation. From the dawning of creation. God with us. The seventh day shows up in chapter 2. And it says this, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. A couple things. The creation account is a seven day enterprise. 
We're going to get a little technical here for a minute, so follow me. It's a seven-day enterprise. The number seven is a massively important number in the ancient world and in biblical studies. As we look at our Bibles, the number seven is massively important. It is the number of completion. But there's more to it. See, in 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 37 through 38, it says the following, referring to the building of Solomon's temple. See, Solomon was a king who was commissioned by God to build a temple for God. And this is after the fall, right? This is after Adam and Eve got cast out of the garden. A bunch of history takes place. Solomon enters on the scene, and he wants to build a temple to God because he was called to do this. And it says this in chapter, one of, um, in chapter 6 of 1 Kings. It says this. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. In the month of Ziv and in the eleventh year in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications, He was seven years in building it. It's important. It took Solomon seven years to construct the temple. How long did it take God to construct creation? Seven days. Seven's important. In addition, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon held a 14-day feast identified in 1 Kings 8 as seven and seven days. Again, that number shows up in the biblical text. Seven. Seven. The seventh day of creation is the day when God rests. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Did God just like take a nap? He was done. He was kind of like, all right, I'm good. I'm out. I don't need to do this anymore. There are some people who believe that. Deists believe that God created all the world and then just stepped back and said, all right, have at it. But we don't believe that. We believe in a personal God. We believe that God is active in creation, that he is present in creation, that he's with us, and that he cares deeply for his creation. See, Psalm 132, 7 through 8 and 13 and 14 suggests that there's something more to this rest that's going on. He says this, let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. If he's dwelling there forever, do you think he's kicking his feet up and doing nothing? No. Of course not. So what is the point of this rest that God enters into on day seven, none other than he is getting ready to get to work. I think a good example, and I'm going to steal this from John Walton, a scholar that teaches at Wheaton Theological Seminary or whatever it's called. He says this, it's like, it's like when a president has a campaign, and this seems appropriate right now, right? A president is running for office. He runs a, an intense campaign. It's months and months, maybe even a couple of years of campaigning and campaigning. They're working hard, working hard, going from city to city, making speeches all over the place. And then when he wins, he goes and he enters into the Oval Office to lead the country. Does he go and put his feet up? No, he gets to work. He gets to work. See, the point is, God's resting place is his dwelling place. And in the words of the prophet Isaiah, heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool, and the footstool of God is the Ark of the Covenant, which is found in the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. In other words, the language found in these temple texts throughout the Old Testament is eerily similar to the language found in both Genesis 1 and 2. It is eerily similar. But there's more. 
First Kings 6 through 7 describes the temple and its furnishings in a way that points us back to the Garden of Eden, something I will encourage you to look at this week, First Kings chapter 6 through 7. All sorts of, of garden illusions, all sorts of, of foliage sort of illusions are found in chapter 6 through 7 in First Kings. But the nail in the coffin is the role of Adam. See, in Genesis 2, Verses 4 through 17, it says this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in, in the east. And there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stones are there. These are all things that we would see in the temple furnishings in 1 Kings. Lost my spot. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the river Euphrates. And here's where it gets exciting. And I want you to get excited with me because I'm very excited about this. Because you guys don't look that excited. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may eat. No, I'm not going to read that part. He took them and put them in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Remember those two words, to work it and to keep it. See, the garden of Eden, one, it's planted in the midst of creation, similar to the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle and the temple. And he places his image bearers within that place, a custom very similar to that of other ancient Near Eastern religions where temple builders would place an image or an icon of their God within the temple. In other words, God is sharing his creation with his image bearers that he might rule and reign alongside us. Or better yet, we rule and reign alongside him. And in 2.15, chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and keep it. This is the exact same language we see in Numbers 3.7. When the Levites were tasked to keep guard, to work and keep over him and cover the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. And in 1 Chronicles 23, 32 and Ezekiel 40, 14, two temple passages that lay out the role of the priesthood, which is to work and keep it. To work and keep it. In other words, the story of creation is the story of God building for himself a cosmic temple for the purpose of dwelling and co-ruling with his people, meaning that from the, the very beginning, God's relational and cosmic presence with his people was always the goal. Always the goal. Now, I know that was a lot of stuff to get to that point. But the point being is that Adam was the first priest, and he was tasked to work and keep the temple, to guard the temple. He fails that task. 
He fails that test because the serpent enters in in chapter 3. And what ends up happening is that Adam and Eve are both deceived. And, and there we experience what theologians call the fall of humanity. But there's also a promise in that passage where the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. But at the end of that chapter, an angel is placed at the gate to guard the entrance to the temple or the garden. But God always wanted to dwell with his people. All that to say that God's desire, his goal, the end goal of creation was that God would dwell with his people. That's the point. And so when we think about Christmas and we think about what that means, that Jesus came to earth to dwell with his people and that then when he leaves, he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in his people, we are seeing the fulfillment of this goal take place right before our eyes. Right before our eyes. Let's jump to the New Testament. I want to go to John chapter 1 if I can... Get there. I marked all my pages last night because I'm a cheater. It says this in John chapter 1. So let me, let, me, let me go here. That goal, like I said, it was temporarily thwarted. But this brings us to John's gospel. I'm not going to steal your thunder, Pete. But I want to read a couple of verses. See, the beautiful thing that John does is he reaches back into creation. He reaches back into that story. And he pulls all this stuff with him. And he presents Jesus to us through the, through the lens of creation. It says, in the beginning, we've heard those words. We heard those words just a few minutes ago. In the beginning, John chapter 1 was the word, and the word was with God. He was, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And here is so cool in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What happened on day one of creation? What did God speak? Let there be light. And here we see, as new creation dawns in the person and work of Jesus, what are the first things uttered? Light. Jesus brings light to the world. In the midst of chaos, Jesus brings order. In the midst of darkness, Jesus brings light. And what else happens? It says in verse 14 of chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or as I'm sure you've heard, tabernacled among us, templed among us. And so what is John doing? Not only is he telling us that Jesus was present at creation, but he's reaching back into that temple story of Genesis 1 and 2, and he's saying there's a new temple. There's a new temple, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, and the fullness of God dwells in him. The fullness of God, the very image of the invisible God. That's who we're dealing with when we look at the person of Christ. We're dealing with God. This is wonderful news that God, 
whom we were unable to stand before, enters into creation and now starts touching people and healing people. And then he dies with nails in his hands and in his feet. And then he rises again three days later. And what happens? He breathes on his disciples, the Holy Spirit. And then a few days later, the Holy Spirit descends upon the entire church. And what does that mean? None other than God lives with us. He dwells with us. The Holy Spirit, God, resides in his people because the goal of creation was always that God would dwell with his people. God would dwell with his people. John is not only identifying Jesus with creation, but he's further developing the temple theology of Genesis 1 and 2 by identifying Jesus as the new temple, kicking off the new creation project. Kicking off the new creation project. We just sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because the goal of creation has always been the presence of God with his people. The presence of God with his people. John continues to unpack this theme in chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. It says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, Fair question. What signs do you show us for doing these things? And then Jesus answers. And this is, this is the coolest answer in the world. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. Again, they're blind. They're blind. They don't get it. John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body. So thematically, John is, un, is, is unveiling this temple theology that finds its, its, its place in the person and work of Jesus, who is God Almighty. God Almighty, missionary and commentator Leslie Newbegin, he says it like this. The temple is the place of sacrifice, where God has provided the mercy seat, at which sin is put away and men and women come into the presence of God. But with the death of Jesus, the one true sacrifice is offered, and there is no more need for the blood of sheep and oxen. The temple is the place of God's tabernacling, where his glory dwells. But in Jesus... The word of God has come to tabernacle among us, and we have seen his glory. 
the flesh and blood of Jesus. This man is the temple where God dwells in the fullness of grace and truth. The Jews will destroy the temple, but Jesus will raise it up. This man's body will be the true temple built of living stones and always growing up into fullness. The point is, is that Jesus, the new temple, has come to dwell among us and serve as the very place where the sins of his people would be atoned for, that we might go free. That we might go free. This is the good news of Christmas. This is the good news of the Advent season, that we go free because the temple came here and died and was destroyed and then was raised up three days later. That is good news. That is good news. And that brings us to our final point this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, let me read it to you. I told you there's a lot of Bible this morning. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So a lot of things that we need to be putting away. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then he says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, what's happening to us? We are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We become the temple of God. We become those living stones that are built up into the dwelling place of God. God has rested his presence within us. But a couple of things that are really important about this passage. Holiness is the expectation placed upon the people of God. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Put these things away. Put off these things. Put off these worldly things. Malice, um, it brings nothing good to the table. It is an anti-flourishing sort of endeavor. Deceit and hypocrisy, these things, these things go hand in hand. We cannot claim to be one thing and then do another if we are to claim Christ as Lord. Envy, we should not be looking around and thinking, wow, I wish I had that. I wish I was them. I wish I looked like such and such. That has no place in the body of Christ. Slander. We're not sitting here tearing people down for their political opinions, their mask opinions, whatever the case may be, but rather we are to point them to Jesus. We are to point them to Jesus. But holiness must mark the church because the temple cannot be a place of defilement because God cannot dwell in a place of defilement. And so what does Peter do? He calls us to holiness. Why? Because we are the temple of the living God. But also, it doesn't mean just putting off things, but rather we also are to put on something. We are to long for the spiritual milk, which is almighty God himself. 
And there's debate about this passage. Is it the word of God? Is it this? I, I, I believe in my study, what I've come to conclude is that the, the spiritual milk that we're dealing with in this passage is God Almighty himself. Desire God. Long for Jesus. Yes, we search for him in this book. He reveals himself to us in this book. He reveals himself to us in the community of faith as we participate in the Lord's table. He reveals himself to us. Long for the spiritual milk that is God. Why? Because we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We must not be like Adam who allowed evil to enter into the house of the Lord and destroy it. But rather, we must be as the angel defending the garden, defending the temple from evil, from sin, from debauchery, from lies, from deceit, from all those things. We call those things out as followers of Jesus. And then we point people to Christ. This is what it means to be the temple of God. The people of God make up the New Testament temple of God, whereby God himself has taken up residence, which again points to the fact that the goal of creation was always the relational and cosmic presence of God. The relational and cosmic presence of God. And so as we close our time this morning, my hope is that we would walk away with an understanding that the incarnation of Jesus was the goal from the very start, that he would dwell among his people. That the Garden of Eden and the Old Testament temple, that we would know that they find their fulfillment in both Jesus and the church. Both Jesus and the church. And finally, that when God rested himself on the seventh day within his cosmic temple, he wasn't settling down, or no, excuse me, he was settling down to get to work on ruling and reigning. And here's the catch. Now he has resided himself in each of us, and he's calling us to the same task, empowered by the Holy Spirit to rule and reign alongside him. So he's indwelt us. Not so that we can sit back and kick our feet up, but so that we can get to work on the mission of God. In the same way Jesus did, and how did he do it? By entering into the brokenness of this world, shining a light into the darkness. We are to live out the mission of God, to love him and our neighbor as, neighbor as mobile temples, manifesting the light and the righteousness of God wherever we find ourselves, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is king and in him is the forgiveness of sin. We are to get to work because the temple presence means we are actively engaging this world in the same way Jesus engaged the world, in the same way God has been engaging the world since the dawning of creation. So as we come to the table this morning, we come to commune with Almighty God himself. We come to commune with Almighty God himself. Again, the, the Lord's table is a means of grace where the presence of God is with us at that meal. He's in our midst. We come to the table to remember his broken body and shed blood. We come to the table to have our souls nourished by his grace. We come to the table with a shout proclaiming the wonder of Jesus' death on the cross that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he suffered and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, but that on the third day he rose again and then ascended into heaven. 
This is the good news. This is what we are both proclaiming and demonstrating to the world around us and to the powers and authorities who relentlessly yet foolishly seek to thwart God's plan of redemption. And so Redeemer Fellowship, I will close with a word from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. It reads like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. The sea was no more. We went through that on Christmas Eve last year. What does it mean that the sea was no more? The chaos waters no longer are present in the midst of the kingdom of God. That's our hope. There will be no more chaos. There will be no more pain. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne room saying this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will dwell, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The goal of creation from the very beginning was the presence of God with his people. Redeemer, fellowship, we get God. We get God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, thank you for the beauty and wonder of the gospel, Lord God. Thank you that your son Jesus tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, walked among us. Thank you that he sent his spirit to indwell us, that we might experience the presence of God in our lives on a daily basis. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for this season of hope that in the midst of darkness, there is light. There is always light in the midst of darkness, Father. Lord, that is what you promise us, Lord. Be with us now in Jesus' name.